Hello, lovely people. How are you? Now, here's a first on the next chapter. Not just one, but two episodes with this week's fabulous guest. And when you hear her story, well, I think you'll understand why. Today, we have the wonderful Andrea McLean. As you know, when you train to be a journalist, one of the key things is an eye for detail. And I misread a job advert. Now, most of you will know Andrea as one of our favourite presenters on daytime television for more than two decades. She brightened our mornings on GMTV as the lovely weather girl, and then she was Loose Women's longest-serving host for 13 years. She's also been on so many other programmes like Dancing on Ice and Celebrity SAS Who Dares Wins. And she's interviewed some of the biggest names in show business, like Oprah, Drew Barrymore, Beyonce and Michael Bublé, to name just a few. But what you might not know is how Andrea came to be in these jobs and what life was really like behind the scenes. From her days of training as a journalist to being a household name, Andrea has shown determination, bravery and resilience throughout it all. Then in 2020, Andrea decided to leave her job in television for her own next chapter. She wanted to concentrate on what she loves doing, helping people, especially women, to think differently about themselves and the challenges life throws at them. She's now a life coach and her website, This Girl Is On Fire, is helping people all over the world. She's written four books and is a multiple Sunday Times best-selling author. Andrea is all about next chapters, not just for others, but she's taken the leap too many, many times. Andrea is caring, down-to-earth, open and honest. She believes we all deserve to live lives we love and she wants to do what she can to help you do just that. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Andrea McLean. Andrea McLean, well, I just, I cannot quite put into words. I am just so delighted and thrilled to have you here on The Next Chapter. Welcome to you on this Monday morning. Thank you so much. What a brilliant, brilliant way to start the week. And it is so nice to be in touch with you again after all these years. Oh, Andrea, because I have been watching you from afar, as as I think we all do. Um, and obviously, so we worked together when I was a runner at GMTV. And actually, we even worked together a little bit up in Scotland, I can remember. And um, it was lovely. And then obviously, we lost touch. And then I've watched you. And then everything that you're doing with This Girl Is On Fire is so like what I'm trying to do with the next chapter. And and to hear you speak, I, I've been. I said to you, I've been listening to your one of your books. This girl's on fine. It's like you're talking to me. So so to have you here is amazing. So I'm not going to go on about me. I'm going to go on about you because your story is just brilliant. So we start as ever, Andrea, with the prologue. Now you were born in Glasgow, but then you were raised in Trinidad and Tobago. But also, I think I heard this right. Did you go to nine different schools? You moved around quite a lot. I did. I moved around a lot. Um, my dad was an engineer, and uh, so he worked for a he worked for a sugar company. So, and so it was sugar cane. So, I mean, he 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 first went out to the Caribbean as a really young man. He just married my mum. They've been together since they were fifteen and sixteen. Uh, they were twenty and twenty-one. Never been abroad before, and he was a, he was an apprentice engineer, and he was given the job of going out to the Caribbean and helping to install some machinery. And they basically they never went home. They never went back to Glasgow, mm. and so and that's why I don't really have a Scottish accent. Although I do when I'm with my mum and dad, but not that much. But. Um, <laughs> So what happened was I ended up growing up all around the world because my dad, even th through the same company, but he was sent to live all over the place. I, I tell everyone oh, I grew up in Trinidad because it's kind of easier because that's where I spent the bulk of my time. But we moved a lot. We moved within Trinidad because he changed jobs. Uh, I also lived in the Philippines. I lived in Bromley in Kent. Uh, I went to school in Scotland for a little while. 
uh, we went back to Trinidad again. I went to two different schools there. Um, back to the UK and moved to Leicester and then Chester. So by the time wow. I was 18, I'd been to nine different schools in four different countries. Wow. And it, wow. it was it was challenging, if I'm honest. And it mm. became more challenging the older I got. Because when I was little, we didn't really think about it. We were just sort of used to it. But when I was a teenager, it became harder because you start to get a bit settled and you get your little friendship group and then we're moving again. And I always moved in the middle of a random term. It was never a sort of, you know, at the normal time of school year. So I was always kind of walking in. Hi, everyone. There's this new kid and everyone's looking at you. Um, so it was challenging, but also taught me a lot, I think. Um, it broadened my horizons. I realized how broad-minded I was compared to everyone else when we when we moved back to the UK, because um, I'd seen the world. And mm. I realized actually in a lot of the times, I knew more than the teachers. Mm. You know, they were talking about certain things. I think, well, no, I, that's not how it is. You're, you're talking about things from a really narrow frame of mind. I once got kicked out of a class because I put my hand up and challenged a teacher and said, actually, you're wrong. <laughs> That didn't go down very well. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, got I bet it didn't. Out of the class of being rude. I remember standing in the hallway thinking, "That's not rude. I'm, I, I'm just making a point. Actually, he doesn't know what he's talking about." So, was, yeah, bit of a life lesson. There we are. Not the last, first and last time I've been told to get out. <laughs> well, and there's nothing wrong with that, Andrea. Nothing wrong at all. But this, I mean, obviously, we will go on to talk about this because you, you know, there, you do have a sense of. I say fearlessness is probably. That's a little bit flippant because you're you're very brave and you face it. It's not that you don't feel the fear, but you feel the fear and then you do it. And you know who knows. And I'm no psychologist, but to 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 have this as a child to ha- have to keep going into a classroom of of strange faces, and especially sort of when you're getting into your teens, I suppose. Do you think that is where a lot of you, you must have been? There was they were sowing the seeds there to have this because you were used to coming out of the comfort zone and going into the discomfort zone as such. I think so. And what's fascinating about this is that my sister and I obviously had the same experience. But as, a, as an adult reflecting back, you realize that no one ever has the same experience. You might you might go through the same things, but you're doing it with your own mindset, your own personality, and also whatever age you are when you go through it. So my sister was younger than me, and she just kind of bombed along, and she'd sort of turn out, she's a very happy soul, love my sister, and she'd sort of bounce in like, hi, here I am, and <laughs> instantly have a group of friends. I'm actually very shy, so and I was a lot more introverted than her, so I found it a lot harder than she did. And I think also it just... The, the times we moved coincided with slightly more challenging times just by, you know, coincidence. So what I did learn was, okay, um, this is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. There is absolutely no point kicking and screaming and making a fuss because it's happening anyway. Because mm-hmm. we're, we're all very practical as a family. We're not a kick, scream and make a fuss kind of family. Um, so just suck it up and it will be what it will be. And I learned to quietly observe i never i never wandered into anywhere and went ta-da here i am <laughs> i'm this girl who's been all over the place you know da, da, da. actually it was the opposite i i let people make their mind up about me and then i kind of slotted in mm. and i think i've done that my whole life i'm actually very quiet but weirdly i'm like a i'm like an in an extrovert trapped in an introvert's body because put me on a stage put me in front of a camera and yes I feel the fear but I absolutely do it anyway and love it I might be pouring with sweat and shaking and thinking oh my god this is all going to go so wrong but there's a bit of me gets such a kick out of it and yet put me in a room of people and ask me to network and mingle and I'm tongue-tied and so shy mm. so I'm a, I'm a walking contradiction I can't explain it but mm. well, I tell you I can imagine you going into I think you should go into rooms and go ta-da Andrew I think you absolutely should my goodness if anyone should you should but we will come on to this and and you I think did I again did I read this right at around the age of 15 I think did you do some work experience in journalism was journalism something that you always had in the back of your mind um writing was always something that I had in my mind and I I would say that was probably from about the age of nine or ten 
And, I've, you know, I'd always loved writing at school, at primary school and all that sort of stuff. It's always my favourite thing. And then when I was, I guess, about 10. So we, I grew up in, in, in third world countries a lot of the time. So, you know, a lot of time we didn't even have electricity, never mind, never mind anything else. And guess what, kids? There was no internet. No. So, you know, you had to ah. either read books or draw or play games or what have you. And I used to write stories for my younger sister. And it was the first time that I realized that what I wrote could be enjoyable to someone else. And so I think I was about 10 then. And then when I was 15, we were living in Leicestershire at the time. Uh, and then I, the world kind of opened up in terms of, ma you know, uh, teen magazines and this sort of thing. Uh, I actually had my first article published at the age of, age of 16 wow. in Just 17 magazine. And wow. uh, it was 15, 16. And... I didn't tell them how old I was when I sent it off, uh, but I wrote a piece about bullying because I was being bullied at school and I turned it into a short story, but it was, it was, you know, it was, it was about that. And I never told a soul. I was so proud of myself, so proud of myself. And I got the, the, the typed letter back from the publishers saying, and here's 150 pounds for an article. Wow. 150 pounds in 1985 or whatever it was. Yeah. Felt like a million pounds. Yeah. Um, and that was when I opened my first ever building society account and put money in from writing and, and working. And so I it kind of opened my eyes and I ended up, I approached the local newspaper, which was the Harbour Mail. I lived in Market Harbour in Leicestershire and asked if I could do work experience there. And I loved it. I'd never really considered journalism as a form of writing before. I'd always thought storytelling or, or that sort of thing. And I was really fortunate that I was buddied up with this amazing, amazing man. It gives me goosebumps when I think about him. He was a he was an older man and he'd he'd been a prisoner of war in the Second World War. And I was partnered up with him and we went off in his car and we drove around Leicestershire and I sat with him while he interviewed people and he chatted to me about his life while we were driving around. And I thought he was utterly fascinating and brilliant. And what he sort of instilled in me was this sort of calmness. I watched how he interviewed people and he was so caring towards them and he was just really fascinated by their story. And he was so quietly encouraging of me. I was only there for a few, I was there for a week in terms of, you know, every single day. It was in the olden days, it, there was a typewriter. You had pieces of carbon in between three pieces of paper. You literally spiked a story and he showed me how to do all of that. Then I went in to see the editor on my last day this is the editor of a local newspaper. And uh, he said, so have you enjoyed your time? And I said, yes, very much. And I'd like, I'd like to carry on. If, I know I'm only 15, 16, however old I am. So, but, um, and I'm at school, but can I carry on doing some writing for you? And he said, yeah, if there's any stories that you hear of that you think that we would like, absolutely write them up for us and send them in. And he said, so has it made you feel that you want to be a journalist? And uh, no, you have to picture the scene. It's 1980s. I've got a terrible perm that my mum had done. My <laughs> mum was a trainee hairdresser years Love before, it. but she trained on old ladies. Oh. So I, <laughs> we're not talking share cascading yeah. curls. Yeah. No, it was nana curls. Love and it. I wore jumpers that my granny knitted me and I had acne. So okay. picture the scene. Okay. This is what You've I look like. Scene. It's yeah. not a, some, some, some sort of Julia Roberts moment. Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> and uh, I said to him, Yes, it has. I'm I'm going to be the youngest ever editor of Cosmopolitan. Because at the time, to me, that was the height of sophistication yes. was Cosmopolitan magazine. And he smiled and he said, well, good luck with that. Oh. And, you know, but in yes. a nice way, yes. just, well, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, I went off thinking, well, that's absolutely what I'm going to do. So whenever I heard of something uh, that I thought, gosh, that's interesting, I would go and interview someone about it and I'd send in my little story and I did it for free and I did it for, mm. you know, a few years. But that one moment in time was what set me on the path Isn't towards that? wanting to be a journalist. But to be the kind of journalist that, that leans in and listens to people's stories. Um, many years later, I ended up doing the same thing but working for free for a paper up in, in Chester. And at the time, I'd been traveling for a year, been back, I backpacked around the world. I'd come back, I was working in a shop, 
and I worked for free for the local paper there. And I remember there was a breaking news story and all the, the news journalists ran off to go and doorstep these people. And I, I wouldn't go because I just thought that's, that's not me. That's not who I am. I would, I would rather interview someone with, with care and compassion after, I mean, even during the event, but, you know, but with care and compassion and want to hear their story. I'm not interested in doorstepping someone who's either had something terrible happen to them or they've made a mistake or they've something's happened and they're going through a terrible time. And to do the equivalent of poke them in the eye and then put it all over the papers, mm. that's never been who I am. Um, so that's I applied to that newspaper, actually, to be a trainee journalist. No wonder they turned me down because they thought you're the one who keeps not going to all these news <laughs> She's stories. staying in. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. The the local paper turning me down for a journalism trainee job uh, meant I literally, my parents had moved abroad again. Uh, so we I didn't have a family home. I was living in a rented place with a friend. Literally packed up my mum's old Fiesta. Everything I owned in the backseat of my car and I drove to London. Mm. Slept on floors got a bed sit and um went to journalism college in london oh. and that was how my journey started here because the local paper turned me down that's incredible hang on, right hang on just hang on two secs there Andrea. so let, let me just quickly go back before we go into it what was it like living as a child in somewhere like tobago and trinidad just you know you touched on there that you didn't have the internet and things like that did you was it as idyllic as you would think it would be it was all I knew. So I don't know whether it was idyllic or not, because it was all I knew. And I think also people have an idea about what it's like to live in, you know, places like these, because you go on holiday there. It's very different, obviously, if you're living there. So I, I went to um, I went to, to to primary school and secondary school there that my my primary school was because the the company my dad worked for it was a it was a Trinidadian company. My dad had gone into to work for them. They actually had their own school, so it was so tiny. I mean, literally, really small. So I went to that school, and then I did my eleven plus, and I went to a local school. Um, it was just life. I mean, I suppose in terms of what was it like, it was. It wasn't just the the geography of it. It was the the moment in our history, because. If you think about it, it was the 70s and the 80s. It was a time of rally and chopper bikes. It was a time of Walkmans with the orange spongy headphones and, you know, your cassette tapes and this sort of thing. Um, Flashdance had come out. You know, it, were, it was fun and free and carefree. And your, your biggest problem was your normal friendship groups and does this boy like me and all that sort of stuff. I suppose the, the for me, the biggest change and I realize this now you know when we moved back to the UK life was so different was nobody cared about labels mm. I got my my mum made my clothes we I got my shoes from Batter so Batter is a it's a shoe shop that you'll see if you travel around the world it's it's uh, it's in it's in mainly in third world countries I got my shoes from there um there was none of this you're wearing the wrong thing or what designer is that and all that there was none of that it was actually nobody really cared you were just kind of cracking on um you know my life experience is very unique I was the only white girl in my class when I was in secondary school and I it it wasn't even a thing I didn't even think about it I was just me in my classroom with my friends it was only when I came back to the UK that I realized how unusual that was yeah. Um, you know, my my best friends, my little friendship group, uh, were a mixture of, uh, you know, Afro-Caribbean, uh, mixed race of Chinese and Spanish, people of Indian origin, Chinese origin, me, all sorts, all mixed in together. So for me, coming back to the UK and suddenly it's a big deal whether my trainers are the wrong kind and people are not speaking to other people because of ridiculous reasons, I didn't get it at all. And to be honest, I still don't get it because mm. I grew up in a place where it's, you know, it mattered, mm. but it also didn't matter. Mm. Um, I think has, I've been very fortunate with that because it's 
I walk through the world with very open eyes mm-hmm. and open ears mm. and I think an open heart, which a lot of people sadly haven't been given that opportunity, but I did. You did. But isn't that then amazing? Because then when you went then to do your journalism, your work experience and you were with your lovely reporter... And you know firsthand how not all reporters are lovely and exactly like what you said you didn't, what you didn't want to do, you've later been on the receiving end. So again, you had such a compassion then that this was just not what you wanted to do. But how lovely that you saw in that first newspaper that it did exist, that actually journalism can be very kind and it can be a very wonderful thing to do. Um and and then obviously that then appealed to you. And then again, being brave, going into London on your own, because that would have been very easy for you not to have done that. You could have gone with your mum and dad abroad, or but you've got your sense of adventure. You're going, you go into your little bed sit, which I heard you say was like the side of a, of a disabled toilet. Um, and then, so you so you did your journalism college, and then you went. To, I think were you a freelance travel writer before getting into central press features? Is that right? Um, and then you became a production editor. So you really did have a basis of a, a you know journalism yeah so the travel writing came about uh, I wrote freelance articles funnily enough for the newspaper that turned me down for a, a traineeship um, but I repackaged them because I realized you know it's it's the same information but it, you repackage it in different ways for different publications so I I wrote for 19 magazine I sent it off to them uh, I wrote for various travel magazines and what I'd done was I'd gone traveling for a year, again, no internet, and you went off with your copy of The Lonely Planet and off you went. Um, And I kept really detailed notes of everywhere that I'd been, really detailed notes. And they were diaries, but they're also notes I'd see now. And when I got back, I went through them and I put together travel pieces on everywhere that I'd been. Um, So that was my, my travel journalism. And then... Uh, when I when I moved to London, yep, and I got my job at Central Press Features, uh, that was based in Kentish Town in in North London. Uh, I, be, I was a staff writer and, and sub editor, so I was in charge of not just you know interviewing and, and what have you, but also because it was an agency, it was kind of all hands on deck. So you you were most of us were writer subs, so you'd write your piece and then you'd sub someone else's. So you'd put it together on a page on a computer and and this sort of this sort of thing. But I, you know, I loved it. I loved it for a while. I didn't like it once I be, I got promoted to production editor. It just meant I wasn't writing anymore. I was in charge of everyone else's copy. Mm. Um, but when I was a writer sub, I loved it because I would interview people during the day, and it could be anybody. I mean, I could be interviewing an MP about an education policy. Or I could be sent to ITV to interview somebody from Coronation Street. Yeah. It was, and then in the evenings I would go to uh, film premiere or not premieres, film screenings, and uh, opening nights of plays because I did film reviews and theatre reviews. And then all my trips on the tube and everything else, I was reading books because I was doing book reviews, and I lo- I loved it. Mm. I really loved it. I just didn't like it when I became production editor because mm. there's nothing creative for me about that. So that was why I ended up mistakenly auditioning to be a weather presenter and quit my job <laughs> wow so that brings us very neatly on but I mean but there there it was you didn't know that but that foundation was there that was going to just you know talking because I know what that's like to be you know you have to interview an MP like you say and then you go into a showbiz and what you were then going to go on to do that was just the perfect training ground for it it really really was so so did you just see because you went to work for the weather channel is that right did you see that they were looking for weather presenters and you auditioned for them is that how it all came about (laughs) and did you know about the weather so I (laughs) as you know when you train to be a journalist one of the key things is an eye for detail yes and I misread a job advert Basically, it was at the time when I was living in my bedsit and I was applying for any and every job on the back of UK Press Gazette, um, the, the, the sort of journalism trade magazine at the time. And uh, it said, journalist with on-screen presence and interest in weather. And I just saw journalist and I thought, well, I did geography A-level, that'll do. Yeah. And so I just applied for this this job. And they asked for a photo, which I suppose was a bit weird, but I didn't really think anything of it. So I sent a photo in. And anyway, I got a call from this very snarky lady to say, you haven't even sent, and and I was working at um, Central Press at the time. So I gave them my phone number at work. 
bit rude, I suppose. But uh, again, we didn't have mobiles back then. Um, and she said, you haven't even sent in a showreel. I said, what's a showreel? And anyway, it turns out I'd applied to be a weather presenter. So I thought, what fun. I'll go along and I'll write a piece about what it's like to audition to be a weather presenter. And But I was also curious as well, because this is a whole other world that I'd never even thought of doing. So, you know, yes, I went along with curiosity from a journalistic point of view, but I went along as prepped as I could be in mm. terms of, right, I want to do a good job with this. So I ended up, I got offered work, which was crazy. I never ended up writing the piece. And it was, it was, uh, it was an audition for a company that provided weather presenters for all sorts of different people. So it could have been someone on regional on ITV or national on ITV, but also the weather, uh, the weather channel. And I, a few things happened that day. They, we got a weather briefing, which was very complicated and long. I understood, I wrote shorthand. So I basically treated it like a challenging interview. I wrote it all down in shorthand and thought, really, there's only some key points that we need to know out of this. It's got a beginning, a middle and end with some facts. Treat it as that. So I did. Then they said, look down the lens and talk for one minute about anything you like. Okay. So I talked about the fact that I shouldn't really be here, that I'd mistakenly auditioned and mm -hmm. how funny and that it happened to be on my day off and here I am. <laughs> I didn't find that hard at all. And then to do the weather briefing, I just imagined someone I liked and loved that I was telling them this story about the weather, looked straight down the lens and did it. I didn't find it hard. Wow. I, I wasn't, I was nervous, but I was, didn't find it challenging. So what was funny was that very snarky lady, um, she was actually lovely afterwards. <laughs> she called me into her office and went, well, didn't expect that from you. Um, she said, we actually don't have anything for you right now, but can we keep you on our books? Two years later, <gasps> I got a call. Two years. Two years later. I mean, luckily, I was still at this company because the phone rang and it was this, this um, person said, your tape has been left with a note on the top saying one, one to watch. Um, and I've put you in and, you know, I've had a look at you. Do you want to come in the Weather Channel looking for a weather presenter and at the oh. time I didn't want to be a weather presenter but I'd had enough of being production editor and in the morning the same it happened to be the same day that they asked me to come in I had a, an interview with Just 17 magazine <gasps> now this was my holy grail mm. this was the first place that had ever published me yeah and so I said okay I can come in in the afternoon I did the worst interview in the history of interviews for just 17. I wanted it so badly that I must have smelled like a desperate date. It was, I walked out of there <laughs> mortified because I did such a bad job. So I remember walking out into the street thinking, right, well, I might as well go to this other interview then. So I turned up and I was just myself. You know, they said, why should we hire you? You're not a meteorologist. And I said, I think you're missing the point. You don't need a meteorologist. You need someone who can, whose skill is taking complicated information and putting it together in a way that people understand. And I'm really good at that. You can teach me the meteorology, but you can't necessarily teach people to do the thing that I can do. Wow. So it's up to you. And because I didn't want it, I was able to be really calm about it. And I remember the man walked me to the lift doors, shook my hand. And I remember getting into the lift and as the doors closed, I thought, damn it, I've got the wrong job. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I had. I, I ended up working for the Weather Channel oh, and they were incredible. Goodness. I was sent to Atlanta in America and they, they trained me there. I wasn't allowed on air for, I think it was nearly two months. They trained me in meteorology. They trained me in on-screen presentation, something that does not happen. This is not normal for anyone wanting to get into TV. And so I had this incredible grounding of how to talk to time, how to engage with an audience that you can't see down the camera, how to how to give across, like I say, really complicated information in a way that is relatable. But I think the key thing, and I see this over and over again with many presenters, is you never specify where you are because to them, they're they're you're with them. Yeah. So. Okay, there are some shows that might say, good morning, we're live in London, or hello from Manchester. But when you're presenting to a, either a global audience or a national audience, they need to feel that you're, you're talking to them. Mm. And it was such a skill set to just remind you of the language that you used, that you kept it 
general enough but engaging enough that whoever was watching felt that you were talking to them mm. and I think that was what stood me in such good stead when I ended up working on GMTV because it was a muscle that I'd built up so by the time I ended up working on GMTV and even getting that job's hilarious um, it was something I was very used to that I I already cared about the audience I was speaking to yeah. and I wanted I wanted to do a good job for them and I wanted to do it in a, in a friendly and down-to-earth sort of way which was exactly what GMTV was yeah yeah it was but go I mean Angie you had an actual sliding doors moment when that that those lift doors closed and you could have gone the other job and that would have taken you to be cosmopolitan editor I mean that honestly that is a proper sliding doors moment and imagine if you weren't working at central press and because they only had that number that's crazy Angie that is crazy I've got to ask you this did you still have the perm that your mum did or had you moved on by then was it was it did you still have your perm I'd moved on you had and my acne had cleared up by then (laughs) (laughs) I but I would imagine that you still look very lovely very lovely so so yeah so then so you worked I think so did you um so you worked with the weather channel and have I got this right you worked for channel five's espresso a daily so there was a so so you really did have and I had when I worked with you then when I worked with you at GMTV I haven't quite clocked I I never realized until I researched how much you had done beforehand um so was that that was a that was a talk show was that related to were you a weather presenter on that so I can't even remember how that came about the espresso job um so espresso I suppose was like an early incarnation of something like um I suppose the Jeremy Vine show or the right stuff you know that that sort of thing channel five was brand new mm. and they were looking for people to come in and 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 be panelists in front and it was very similar sort of setup and I can't even remember how I how I got that job but it was based in Southampton and so I used to drive down from and I was doing the weather channel at the at the time I might have had an agent then I can't remember so maybe I got it that way um, I used to drive down to Southampton I mean, it was dark. I'd drive down so early in the morning. Um, there'd be a morning meeting, very similar to GMTV. It was like an, uh, a production team. You'd, dis- you'd talk through the newspapers and what was going to be the conversation of the day. And then the two main, the main presenter was a lady called Patty Caldwell, who was, in- she was an incredible force. So she was a, she was a, a journalist, but an on-screen journalist. I think her background actually came from uh, uh, sort of regional news and, and working her way up into, into national television. Uh, it was her and her husband. They were incredible, considering I'd never done anything like that before, and I was probably the youngest person there. They were like my newspaper person back when I did work experience. They were warm, they were engaging, they were stubborn, they pushed me, they they told me when I was doing things wrong, um, but in a really encouraging way. And I really, I cut my teeth on um, daily, live, fact-based television on espresso. Mm. So yeah, I used to drive down to Southampton and I only did it a couple of days a week so that it would fit in around the Weather Channel. Um, but again, it taught me that you can talk about conversate that issues and topics of the day, but you can do it with heart. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be trashing anyone. You can do it with heart. <laughs> I mean, literally, I'd be driving home. I can't remember what motorway it was with one eye open then the other eye open. And then there was a certain service station. <laughs> I used to have to pull in and wind up the windows and lock the door and just put the seat back and sleep because oh, I'd be so tired yeah. and then drive back and then drive to the weather channel and do my shift there. So again, by the time I came to do GMTV, I had live broadcasting experience I had features experience if you like um but yeah all muddled up together it gave me and plus with my print interviewing experience it it gave me all the tools I needed for GMTV and sleeping in cars because we all know the hours and because so 19 1997 you became so you got the so how did you get that job so I got made redundant from the Weather Channel okay. and it was it was heartbreaking because I absolutely loved the job. I, it came out of nowhere. I didn't see it coming at all. And uh, it was also really scary because I, you know, I was living in a flat, funnily enough, with one of the girls from the Weather Channel. Uh, we'd My boyfriend at the time was living over in Cardiff, so he'd sort of be dipping in and out, but I had flat. So I had bills to pay. Um, so they... <laughs> 
the, I heard through the grapevine that there was a job going at JMTV. So I, I didn't have a showreel, but I had a, a photo card by then. And so I sent that into JMTV. Again, this is, this is in mail. There's no email and stuff back then. And I got a phone call at the flat this time um, <laughs> from the, the PA for the, from the editor of JMTV saying, can you come in for an interview? So, oh, my gosh, that's so exciting. So I went in for an interview to be a weather presenter and I turned up and it was at ITV Towers where, yeah, you know, yeah. we used to work and I was called into the office to the then editor. Who was that? Who was that then? It was Jerry Melling. Jerry Melling, yeah. I remember him, yep. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, and it was Jill was his PA. Jill Stacy so, or Jill Arbor? Yeah. Jill. Uh, Jill, I think it was Jill Arbor. Jill Arbor. Um, <laughs> got called in. And they sat me. You can you can picture the scene. I can. Sat me down in that little low low sofa. <laughs> always low, always low. Yeah. <laughs> and they stood there and they just looked at me and they looked me up and down and smiled and looked at each other and said, "She does, doesn't she?" And I've I have no idea what they're talking about. And it turned out they had only invited me in to look at me in real life because. Um, when my picture had arrived, Jill had opened his mail, burst out laughing and, and took the picture in and said, why is your girlfriend applying to be the weather girl on GMTV? And apparently I really looked like the editor's girlfriend. <laughs> so I said they had only called me in no. to see in real life. That's I crazy. Much like oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, I'm not so, sure if it's I, good or bad. I don't know any of this. I'm yeah. thinking, what? And so Jerry said, well, while, while you're here, you might as well audition, which was very confusing to me because I thought that was why I was there. So... I auditioned and then they let me know afterwards, look, we've actually already hired someone to, to be the weather presenter, but they're a model and they don't know anything about doing the weather. You clearly do. So I was given the job of training the person who had got the job. Oh. Um, so you know, I don't have an ego. I don't care. I, I need to pay my rent. So I, yeah. for I think about a month or so, I trained the person who had actually got the job. But what was brilliant about it was it meant every day I was going in to GMTV with no pressure. No one was expecting anything of me. I got to know people. I got to know the layout of, of everything. Um, I, you know me. I'm very friendly, so I was friendly to everybody. And then that was it. They, they, they were off and running. And I think about a month, five weeks later, I got a phone call saying, they can't hack it. It's too stressful. It's actually, there's a lot more to it than they realized. And we need someone really quickly to step in. Can you step in and do the weather until we find someone else? Absolutely. I've got bills to pay. I, I will happily stand in and do this. So I went in as a stand-in person until they found someone that they really wanted. <laughs> and uh, so I was there for about four months. I just kept turning up. Yeah. I was nice. I was quiet. I kept my head below the radar. And then about four months later... I went to see Jerry Melling and I said, hi, um, I'm still here, sort of standing in. I just wanted to know, have I got the job? Am I staying? What am I doing? Because I, I need to know if I need to apply, start applying anywhere else and all this sort of thing. You know, what's happening? And he said, and I, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Always. He went, fuck me. I haven't even noticed that you're here. <laughs> okay and I said am I am I doing an okay job and he went <laughs> every housewife in her dressing gown thinks she can do a better job than you you're very non-threatening let's face it you're no caprice <laughs> the worst thing is this comes as no surprise this is the worst part <laughs> <laughs> and so I said Okay, is that a good thing? Yeah. And he went, yeah, just carry on doing what you're doing. You're fine. Oh, so that was how I got the job. Amazing. So what I did was once the kind of, okay, and I sort of breathed out, I went back to see him and I said, <laughs> look, I'm really pleased that you, you, you're happy with what I'm doing with the weather. But just to let you know, I have a degree in history and politics. Um, I, I'm a trained journalist. I've worked for journalists for a year. I actually have for years I actually have all this other experience I'd really like to do some features reporting for you can I do that and so what happened was because I remember I used to do week on week off with the weather I shared the job with Simon Keeling oh, yeah. and uh, he sort of joined a bit later 
So it meant on the weeks that I wasn't doing the weather, this is where GMTV was the most amazing TV program because what people don't realize is GMTV actually owned its own airtime. It wasn't just a show. It was actually like, like a broadcaster in its own right. It was a really strange time in television where they could set their own remit and they could do whatever they wanted. They weren't answerable to anyone. And Peter McHugh, who we all know, yeah. director of programs, uh, I again, I went to him and said, I, I want to do features reporting. And I became known as, I was the girl who could be sent to interview people who didn't want to be interviewed or yeah. people who were difficult or very, very nervous. Um, I was the one who could calm them down, um, make them feel supported. I could interview parents whose daughter, I remember one in particular, there was a, a family whose daughter, I think she'd had a heart transplant and she was in hospital. So I was sent to the hospital to interview them uh, and sit with the daughter. And I remember really clearly there were other news teams there and my interview was the last one of the of the day. And I remember watching how these journalists were treating these parents. I, I was horrified because they were literally treating them like cannon fodder. They would they would come in, they'd, they'd set up their, their kit and then they'd just kind of verbally smack them in the face with, well, this must be really terrible for you. How awful that, you know, your daughter's going through this thing. I bet you feel really bad. Mm -hmm. And these poor parents were rocked to the core. And by the time it got to my turn, actually, I just let them breathe. Mm -hmm. And I let them have a have a moment. And I reassured them before the cameras are running. You don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. I'm I'm here to share your story. I'm not here to, you know, exploit your story. I want to share it. And I ended up, I had more time with them than anybody else. And I loved them. I thought mm. they were an incredible, incredible couple. And it was beautiful to see that their, their daughter went, into, went on to flourish and do well. And news got back to GMTV that actually she's really good at this. And that was the kind of stuff that I got sent to do. So again, it was a mixture of natural empathy and, and observation. You know, when you say about, you know, arriving in schools and standing back and getting the lay of the mm. land a little bit and then thinking, I can't go in and do the same thing that they're doing. That's disgusting. I'm just going to do it how I am and we'll see what happens. Um, but also, you know, in, integrity and skill, the, the, the two can go together. Mm. You don't. Journalism gets a really bad press because there is some shocking journalism mm. out there. But really, what we see as journalism now, it's not journalism. No. The stuff that we see online, that is not journalism. It's that not. is hatchet. It's not even reporting. No. It's it's hatchet jobs. Mm. Um, I would be embarrassed to call myself a journalist to work on some of the online publications that, mm. you know, that we see nowadays. That's That's got nothing to do with being interested in the person and their story. It's just hacking people online and I've, I've no time for it which is why I you know mm. do what I do what I do because yeah. really I'm just doing what I've always done yeah but that is I mean Angela that is I mean just going back as well Jerry Mellon but you know you did that you did really well with that because to a to be go like you said you had no ego okay but to be asked to go in and train someone a lot of people would take umbrage to that umbrage to that Angela and you just went in and you did it then you were called in to do the job and then you just carried on doing it quietly and again I think that was really strong because I would oh my god and I know that environment and to be going in there every day thinking you know do I belong? Should I be doing this? Shouldn't I? And you just kept your head down and you did it. Then you went into Gerald Melling and then you went to Peter McHugh and said that you wanted to do that. I know how brave all of that was. But then actually, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and like, you know, Caprice is lovely, but so are you. So are you, should we just say. But we, um, you know, that was that again, all this. And I don't want to like keep harping back. But like you say, when you walked into those classrooms, when you were with your lovely journalist who you saw, this is how I want to do it. It all brought it all back in. And then you were absolutely doing everything. You were being, you were able to be Andrea in this world. And I think that takes a lot of strength to be able to be yourself in a world like that. So I think that's, it's 
just amazing. I hadn't quite realised that. It's amazing. So what, I mean, so then you were there for a long time. And I mean, it's such a, it was such a big thing, GMTV. It was like the biggest breakfast show. What was that like for you where you then, you did go on, have to be then on the other side? Because I remember, you know, you would be at, then in the newspaper yourself. You would become the story. And to do that, and also I do know as, as and it is, was such a special place and those people that you mentioned, and there was some lovely, you know, we've got friends from there and it was magical in many ways, but also extremely tough. You know, the two, which was why I suppose we were very close, you know, to work in those gruelling hours, which nothing substitutes sleep, you're, you're exhausted, but doing live television, brilliant, but then also finding yourself in the newspaper. I mean, what, what was that like? That must have been such a, such a change, such a next chapter. Um, it was, and you know, I I make light of these stories because uh, I and I, I I genuinely now look back on them fondly because they're they're funny. Um, but I've always I've always actually found it quite easy to be myself because that's just who I am. the The stories that you that you mentioned at that time was I was I got divorced, and obviously, you know, being. The, the lovely weather girl and then my marriage has fallen apart and then uh, th- suddenly I'm the focus of, of other people's attention was really hard. I actually, I became agoraphobic at that time. I could only leave the house to go to work, uh, to take my son to the childminders or the park. He was only two at the time and um, maybe go to the supermarket and that was about it. I couldn't eat. Uh, I felt sick. I felt it, it was it was really, really challenging. And to be honest, work was my saviour because it meant I'd been at GMTB long enough that I knew I could walk in and actually it was like a it was a safe space mm. and everyone knew me and, and liked me and, and what have you. But make no mistake, GMTV was a news program. Yes, we did features, we had love, you know, we had Mr. Motivator and we had fun in the sun and all that sort of stuff, but it was a news program. So at its core was a newsroom. So you were you were also if if you wanted to pitch a feature idea of it, because I had to sit in with all the other news journalists, and not all of them were nice. Some of them would would be really downright awful to you because you're just that thick weather girl why don't you wind your neck in when you're coming up with a story and you could feel it and um the atmosphere wasn't always encouraging you were it was like swimming with sharks some days mm. and for me it was just a case of do you know what? you just got to keep swimming you just got to keep swimming um and it was hard at that time because I felt like uh I had kept I kept quiet about the truth of what my story was in terms of what was going in the press. I kept quiet about it in the in the work environment. So I felt it was probably the first time I felt very disjointed mm. um, in terms of me, myself and I and this sort of thing. That was a really challenging time for me. But again, there was a sliding doors moment at that time because uh, one day I was doing the weather from the Natural History Museum and it was when they'd first introduced an ice rink outside. So I'm wobbling my way around the ice rink doing, a, you know, doing the weather. And that day, unbeknownst to me, um, Christopher Dean was watching the ice skater as in Torvald and Dean. And they were putting a new program together called Dancing on Ice. And the day before, someone had dropped out. And he saw me wobbling around the ice doing the weather, <laughs> rang the production team and said, that girl can stand up enough that I think we can do something with her, get her wow. in. And I got a call that afternoon saying there's this new show coming out called Dancing on Ice. Christopher Dean has said, do you want to come in and, and do it? So the problem was, this is at Christmas. Dancing on Ice starts in January. Everyone else had been training up until this point. So I arrived, literally not really knowing what I was doing. <laughs> Dancing on Ice was another sliding doors moment for me because I, you know, again, I'm being sent all over the country doing the weather. I'm up at half past three in the morning. Then I'm going and training, doing dancing. Clearly, my skill set was never very good. Um, so I got knocked out in round three. However, at the same time, Paul O'Grady had quit his tea time job to move to Channel 4. Out of nowhere, there's this hole in the daytime schedule for an hour a day that they needed to fill. 
I heard through gossip that this had happened and that they were thinking of introducing a show called Dancing on Ice Extra. And I thought, I've just been knocked out. I heard of it on pretty much the day that I got knocked out of the series. And I thought, I've just been knocked out, so I'm suddenly free. I know the ins and outs of this program really, really well. I know the whole team. I'd be really good on this, but I need to act really fast. So I rang. So that was on the Saturday. That's right. It was Saturday night. I got uh, knocked out. I rang my lovely friend uh, who was an editor at GMTV at the time, as in in the dark room, putting all the yep. tapes together. Nick Thomas. Don't yeah, remember yeah, Nick. yeah. Lovely. I rang him and I said... Nick, can you put a showreel together for me showing all the sort of showbiz interviews that I've done and show that I'm really good at that package up and show that I'm good at entertainment type stuff. Can you put it in the internal mail and you can you get it on the this person's desk by Monday morning? And bless him, he did. Wow. He was doing an overnight shift and he wow. put it in the internal mail. Then I rang my agent and said, there's going to be a tape arriving on this person's desk. Can you ring them and say... Andrea is going to be the best person for this job. She's free. She, as in, she's just finished dancing on ice. Da 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 da, and I got it. <gasps> That's amazing. But again, Andrea, the self belief. I love that. That you know, you just you knew it, and you knew you'd be good at it, and then you put yourself forward. And I think women, especially, just don't do that enough, do they? We don't do it enough because you think, oh no, and you did it, and then you got it, and that's amazing. And then from there, is that then when Loose Women came around? So you went to Loose Women in 2008, and is that how that kind of got you got you to that then? What, what doing Dancing on Ice Extra did, and I co-hosted it with Andy Peters, mm. and I was really, really happy to be his, I was the second in command to an, uh, Andy Peters. Andy's a, he is an amazing broadcaster and he is an amazing brain. And I learned so much from, from doing a, what's called a double header with, with Andy Peters for an hour, an hour a day, five days a week, uh, working on Dancing on Ice. I learned so much. And um, what that did was it moved me away in not only the public public's eyes, but also within the industry's eyes that I was capable of more. So by then, I'd I'd already I'd stood in for Fiona Phillips on the sofa. I'd stood in for Lorraine, but I would still then go back to my job as a as a weather presenter. But doing Dancing on Ice Extra every day changed how people saw me, and they realised actually mm-hmm. I was capable of of more. So I then got a, a I. By now, I'm on maternity. I, I, funnily enough, I got I got pregnant after dancing when I was finished. Um, uh, later in the year, actually, uh, March next year, uh, I was on maternity leave with my daughter, and I got a call saying, um, "Would I like to try out for Lucimin?" And I said no because I my my direct answer was no. That's that program with the shouty ladies. <laughs> and, um, and then they said, no, they're, they're interested in you as a host. And I thought, actually, I can do that. I, um, I could do that. Mm. I, I went in every morning as the weather presenter. My shift finished at half past eight. I'd get the lift downstairs. And by 8.45, I was in the morning meeting for uh, Lucy Min. Wow. I cried every day on the way home out of exhaustion because I've got a 12-week-old baby at home and a five-year-old son. I'm doing breakfast television whilst still in a hormonal fog and I've just started a brand new job, which not everybody liked the fact that I was doing it. I was I was covering someone's maternity leave, but I still had a lot of proving to do because one of the women in particular took great umbrage at the fact that some effing weather girl was telling her what to do. Mm. And... Um, that was really challenging because I, even I at that point didn't know it. I knew I could do it eventually, but I knew I wasn't great right then. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I pretended I was someone else. And I thought, and at the time I was a big, big fan of Kay Adams, who obviously I ended up working with, you know, years later. And I, at the time I just thought, right, what would Kay Adams do? I thought she'd stay really calm. She, she'd just weather this out. And I did. And for about six months, I cried every day. Um, and then eventually, the kind of mental muscle kicked in. And I wasn't second guessing and thinking, what would someone who knew what they were doing do? I then realized I was doing it automatically. And then I got really good at it. Mm. Because again, it was a different skill set. It was a live studio audience. It was, it was a panel of people 
that you had to you, you did have to control them because there's a lot of really strong vibrant characters which is the beauty of the show but I was also trying to remain true to myself which is I'm very calm I'm very balanced and to for me I, I'm not going to join in the shouting if if anything the most powerful tool that you have when people are making a lot of noise is to go soft because if you try and raise your voice to, to shout over them you will never win that way actually go soft because and I don't mean soft as in weak I mean soft as in quiet and leave leave pauses leave leave space because then people will lean in because if everybody is screaming and shouting no one is actually listening so for me that was what I ended up bringing to loose women and I learned to do that probably over the first year and then I ended up becoming their longest serving anchor and I worked there for 13 years yeah. which is not something I ever thought I would do mm. uh, but I did it was an it was an incredible job oh and how long did you keep the were you doing the weather being the weather girl as well how long did that did you did it overlap I did that for a year right that was a lot and and when you when you went to loose women were you given a permanent job or was it a short-term contract this is something that many people do not understand. So people think, oh, wow, so you got a 13-year contract. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> at, at times, uh, I was on three months. Wow. So there was, a, there was a period of time of about three years where the longest contract I was given was three months. Oh. So I would work, say, September to December, January to March, March to July or whatever it was. And each time... I never knew if I was coming back after Christmas. I never knew if I was coming back after Easter. And I never knew if I was coming back after summer. And TV is unlike any other world where you find out maybe the week before. Mm. You, you don't know. So, yes, I ended up working there for a really long time. But it was squeaky bum time for a, a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> there was one time, and I can again, I can laugh about it now. In the... When, uh, Lusumin was first on for the first few years, uh, as in, it's been going a very long time, but when I joined was when it became a full-time part of the ITV schedule. It used to be a program that would slot in while they were they had little gaps. Uh, we used to pre-record two of the shows, so you'd do two shows a day, a live one and a pre-recorded. I'd finished, I'd done GMTV in the morning, I'd finished doing the live show, you get an hour for lunch, and then I came back into the meeting room, and the then editor at the time said, oh, um, I'm afraid you're not coming back after uh, this, I think it was that week. Um, I was like, right, oh, okay, what do you mean? And he went, you're fired. <gasps> and uh, I went, right, oh, okay. God. Okay, so um, fine. So I'm still doing the show this afternoon. And he went, yes, please. So I sat and then all the other women filed in and we had our normal meeting and all my, my ears were ringing because all I could think was, I've been let go. I've been let go. I haven't got a job. I haven't got a job. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, actually, no, tell a lie. I wouldn't have done the uh, GM to be in the morning. I must have just finished by then because I was panicking because I hadn't got a job. I ended up staying. Same thing happened again. Can you just stay until we find someone to replace oh, you? Oh, no. So this went on. It was like on a weekly basis. Am I going to be here next week? Yep, we can't find someone to replace you. Then we went into a break, as in, I can't remember what time of year it was. And then they asked me back. That happened for nearly two years. Oh. I didn't know whether I was being brought back or not. And all I did was I never told a soul. I didn't moan to anyone. I didn't bitch to anyone. That oh, my God, this thing has happened. I just kept turning up and eventually it happened again, like, you know, the GMTV mm -hmm. days. Um, I stayed and there became a new editor and they were happy with how I was, how I was. Uh, the head of daytime was happy with how I was. And then in the end, uh, actually the head of ITV was happy with how I was. I found out later, I actually, someone took me to lunch and uh, again, I won't say who they are and they had been, let go and they had gone to the head of ITV and said and demanded to know why I had been kept on and they had been let go and the head of ITV at the time said because she's more popular than you are 
Oh. It's just down to viewers. And the viewers like her more than you. Mm. I'm not saying she's better than you, but the viewers like her more than you, so suck it up. And we went to lunch and she told me this. And I went, okay, I, I don't know what you want me to do with this information mm. because that's it's got nothing to do with me, mm. just as it has nothing to do with you. So we can't take this personally. It's mm. just, it is what it is. Because I've been where you are mm. many, many times. Mm. It just is what it is. And funny enough, we're still friends now mm. because I don't take it personally. And I think when I look back through, you know, all the other bits and bobs that I've been through in career and what have you, I think one of the mistakes that we, we make is we you let your ego get in the way and you kind of flap about and take it all personally. Sometimes it is personal, but you can't take it personally. Mm. If that yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, the thing is, you could have, on that day when you were told that, you could have told your friends, you could, and they could have been, and it all come out and, and that. I, I mean, when you, and again, that is, that to me, there's so much strength in that, Andrea, to be able to just keep going in that way. I mean, do you, like, looking back, do you, you know, do you ever think, oh, I wish I had spoken out? Or are you, do you feel that, because because I think for somebody listening to this who doesn't know the TV industry, the TV industry, like you say, is like no others. And sometimes I listen to things, I know we listen to similar things, or you might listen to people talking about workplaces and how it should be and how you should feel and how you should be at work. And the TV industry often does the exact opposite. I mean, it, it really does. And and it's like, why is that? Is it because it's TV and it it's all done on this um, sense of ego and people want to be there and be popular or have this amazing job? I don't understand. I still don't understand naively why the TV industry should be so different because everybody is a human going to do jobs and they are doing it extremely well. And to be going into that live television pressure that you were doing with those with big characters, I mean, that is like a skill like none other. And I, you know, I appreciate, you know, but it's it's a big job. That is a huge job and but but to, as a human being to have to just keep it together knowing that they're saying oh we're going to be looking for somebody else I mean I just I can't under I, I that is amazing you did that but when you look <laughs> when you look back and now that you're not working in it do you do you look at it as a is it a healthy thing an unhealthy thing what would you say it is what it is mm. and I think um all Obviously, what I do now, and I now, I now, I help women, um, or I help anyone now. Actually, I've 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 stepped away from purely helping uh, women, but I help people understand that all you can do is is to control what you can control. Mm. I I have no clue whether uh, I'm going to get let go after this blush next show. I have no clue whether the network might decide actually we're going in a different direction and we want. I have no clue. I have no control over that. All I can control is how I turn up, how I behave uh, and do the best job that I can. But also, I think, what's the good to be gained from thrashing about and shouting and making a big fuss um, in a way that doesn't serve you? There is there is a time to thrash about and make a big fuss if if there's a reason for it. Absolutely, I remember years later I was sitting in a in a meeting and the then editor did the same thing to one of the panelists. It was it was a terrible terrible management skill or lack of, and they let this person go just before we sat down for the morning meeting and told them that this was going to be their last show. Who who does that? Mm. And so this panelist um reacted very emotionally to it and threw all the toys out the pram because she was so upset that she wasn't wanted anymore and i really felt for her because mm. i liked her she's mm. a really nice lady and she she kicked and screamed and shouted and, and made a big old fuss and in the end that sent her home and she didn't end up doing her her last show and i really felt for her because at that moment her emotions got the the you know the better of her they had totally done the wrong thing but emotions got the the better of her um for me i don't know where it has come from that i'm able to think quite quickly and rationalize it and think i will scream and shout when i get home yeah 
privately when I get home, I'll be thrashing about and rolling on the floor and crying and tears and snot and drinking wine and all the things, yeah. all the things. But I just won't do it here. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, it's amazing. But it also it gives you your grace and your dignity. And that's they can't take that. You know, you can just like you say, do it behind closed doors. And that's what. Oh, my God. I'm so conscious of your time. Would you like we can book in another time. We can do part two. Oh, my goodness. Would you? I mean, could course, you? Yeah. Are you are you sure? Because there's so much I would love to talk to you about rather than cramming it in. So yeah. that would that would be amazing. So I could stop it and then say we're going to do a part two. That would be brilliant. Oh, Andrea, yes. Well, so there you are. We've stopped. And now there will be a part two next week. And oh, there is so much more I can tell you coming up, including what happened when Andrea chose to walk away from that enormous television job. And if you're feeling stuck or wanting to make any kind of change, Andrea will have some brilliant advice for you. Meanwhile, the link to Andrea's website and her books, and I strongly recommend This Girl Is On Fire. It was a bit of a game changer for me. The links are all in the show notes. So until next week, do keep in touch. I'd love to hear your thoughts at elliebarkerwrites.com. Send me a little message. I'd love that. But in the meantime, keep thinking, keep pondering, and whatever it is you are thinking about, I think you can do it. And Andrea does too. And that's even before we finish the episode. Speak soon.